get our Bibles this morning. We're going to look to Acts chapter 13. And we're uh, continuing in our series called We Shall Prevail in our, our study through this uh, great book. And this morning, I'm going to be talking about um, why preach Jesus? I mean, why should we promote Jesus Christ? Why should we uh, proclaim him. Well, uh, last week we saw that uh, Paul and Barnabas were were sent out by the by the Holy Spirit and the church at Antioch to begin this final phase of the of the Great Commission, which was to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And uh, they began by sailing to the Isle of uh, of of um, uh, Cyprus. This was Barnabas' hometowns, where he was from. Uh, when they get to that island uh, in Salamis, they cross the entire island preaching the, the gospel. They go into the synagogues there in Paphos. And then they sail north to Perga. There, John Mark leaves them. And this begin, is the beginning of a, of a controversy that is going to develop between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and lead ultimately to their, uh, their splitting up as a, as a mission team. But uh, from, from there, they go to Antioch uh, Poseidon. Poseidon. Now, that's to be distinguished from the Antioch that you see all the way over here on the left side of the map where they originated. This is a different area. This is actually where the Apostle Paul was from. So they start out in Antioch here by Seleucia, go to Cyprus, they go up to Perga and to Poseidon, Antioch. And when they get to this Antioch, they do what they normally do. They go into the synagogue where the Jewish people are meeting. And after the reading of the scripture, they ask Paul and Barnabas if they have any words of encouragement that they would like to share. Well, of course, the Apostle Paul takes advantage of this, and he stands up, and he begins, he preaches an entire message to the people, a sermon. Now, this is the very first sermon that we have recorded of the Apostle Paul in the Bible. And guess what his topic is? Guess what it's about? Well, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that's to come to the people of Israel. And, and like a good Baptist preacher, his, his message has three points and an invitation. And the, now they're not delineated like in the same way that we do, but they're very clearly there. And, and the very first point is this. Jesus is the culmination of history. Jesus is the culmination of history. You know, men have long wrestled with the question of, of where history is headed, if anywhere. You know, the, is, there, is there a purpose in life? Where is history headed? Is there a point? Is there a goal? Is there a culmination to the life in which we, we live? And some people say, well, it's only a succession of sunrises and sunsets. As some of the Eastern religions of our day say that it's just an endless cycle over and over again. Now, I went back this week and I read some of, um, of uh, Stephen Hawking's lectures. And he believed that the universe 
is expanding because it exploded from a singularity, that thing which we call uh, the Big Bang, over 15 uh, billion years ago. And he believes that it's, it's just expanding and that ultimately it's going to run out of energy and it's going to collapse back on its, into itself. Now, we don't know what was before the Big Bang, but what he believes is that time actually began with the Big Bang. And what we are, what we are in now is we are in something, an event that is happening that is measured by time and Ultimately, it's going to stop, and it's going to come back. And when it does, we don't know what's going to happen. Probably not anything that's happened before. All of this is meaningless. It's purposeless. There's no point to it. It's just the nature of the universe that we get, that it can have is what... And you see, the only meaning that you get, that it can have, is what you give to it. And that's why when he was diagnosed with ALS, that he began to work so hard to try to finalize all of his theories and and put them into books so that there at least be something left of his life. And he wrote a book, it's very famous, it's called A Brief History of Time. Of course, it's what I described, he believes that time began with that Big Bang, it's spreading out, and so we have this, this history. His biography is called... My brief history. She sadly, he sees his life as this little segment and this enormous stretch of time. And that little segment is all there. It's just a little vapor, but it has no meaning. It has no purpose. It's just a part of it. Isn't that kind of sad to think about? And there's, a, there's another a very popular physicist in our day, uh, Michio Kaku. He has a radio program. Lots of people love to listen to him. He's, he's kind of entertaining. And he says, he believes very similar things, but he says that everybody has to make their own meaning. That uh, you, everybody is born with a set of uh, talents and abilities, and that's your job to make the most out of those uh, abilities and, and, and talents that you have. You, give, you must give your own life meaning. He says it's just too easy to have meaning handed to you from heaven. But you have to work at it to make it have any kind of significance. Now, the purpose of his life, he says, is to discover the theory of everything. What we, you may have heard the word string theory. And it's, a, it's an all-encompassing uh, theory of everything that is. Even before the Big Bang, the Big Bang, and after the Big Bang is trying to understand all of it, the nature of the universe. It's an effort to, to hold in your mind all things. It's an effort in some ways to become God. <laughs> and the uh, French existentialist philosopher... Sartre, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, expresses the bleakness of this, um, the hopelessness of this view in one of, his, in his, one of his novels. And one of his characters in that novel says this, quote, While you live, nothing happens. The scenery changes. People come in and go out. That's all. 
There are no beginnings. Days add on to days without rhyme or reason. An interminable and monotonous addition. Just day after day after day, but nothing really changes. Later, he adds this. He says, I I was just thinking, I tell him laughing, that here we sit, all of us, eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence. And really, there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. There's no reason for existing, yet, but for, for some reason, well, we just find this existence so precious. You know, most people in our world live an existential life without even realizing it. If you look up uh, existentialism in the Oxford Dictionary, it says this, a philosophical theory or approach which emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent, determining their own development through acts of the will. You say, what does that mean? Well, that means that there's absolutely no reason for your existence. But ironically, we find this existence very precious, and the only meaning that you can give to life is what you give it yourself. That's what it means. It's a self-determined life. So in essence, it kind of becomes this, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die kind of life. But despite the, the cynicism and the despair, history is headed somewhere. History's going somewhere. And every Jew in Paul's audience knew that history will ultimately culminate with the coming of Messiah's kingdom. And that is where the Apostle Paul begins with his subject. You see, it's just like our three circles. Because in the very beginning, when God created a world without sin, a world where it was without pain or suffering or death or any of those kind of things... Then what did man do? Man broke his fellowship with God in an effort to be, have a self-determined life. And to call his own shots, to do his own thing, to go his own way, live life the way he wants to. We ran from God. And as a result of that, brokenness came into the world in which we live. All kinds of heartache and pain and suffering came with it. But you see, even then, God saw all of that, and he set up a way to recover, to restore that brokenness that has come into our lives, that meaninglessness, that purposelessness, that over, overall, and having no meaning whatsoever. He changed that because he determined that he was going to send someone into the world to bring restoration and healing. And that's where the story begins there. And... When Paul preached Jesus, he preached him as the long-awaited Messiah, the culmination of history. And being a skillful uh, communicator, Paul knew that he had to get the attention of his audience. So he, he begins with the subjects that very dear to their hearts. He begins with Israel's role in God's plan for history. 
Israel had a big role in what God was going to do. So that's where he begins in verse 17. It began, it says, when God, the God of this people, Israel, chose their fathers. See, friend, God is in charge of history. God sovereignly chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. God has got a plan in history. And that plan began in verse 17 when it says, when the God of this people, Israel, chose their fathers. In other words, history's going somewhere. God's doing something. And then after the patriarchal age, verse 18 continues, God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. He made them great in the sense that he increased their population and their influence. But as we know, a a pharaoh arose that didn't know Joseph, and he was fearful that they were going to growing too powerful, and so he enslaved them and began to treat them cruelly. And but God didn't forget His people. Verse seventeen continues, and with an uplifted arm, He led them out of Egypt. So after the Exodus, God continued to care for this nation. It says in verse 18, for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now keep in mind, we're looking at the history of God working with his people. And and he cared for this nation during this time in spite of the fact that they were sinful and rebellious because he had a role. God was going to use them to bring the Savior into the world. And verse 19, and, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. So from the, from the captivity in Egypt until the pr- coming into the promised land, there were about 450 years. 400 of those years were in the uh, captivity. About 40 years of those were in the um, wilderness wanderings. And then from the time they crossed the, uh, the Jordan into the promised land to the distribution of that land was about 10, another 10 years, 450 years. Now see, look, at this. imagine yourself living in the days when you're in Egypt. You're in slavery. And you get up in the morning and you've got to go make brick all day long. All day long. You're going to make brick. And you're going to get up the next day and you're going to do exactly the same thing. Sweat and labor and callous your hands. And you're going to do that the next day. So when you're living a life like that, does it look like God's in charge of history? Does it look like anything's happening? What does it feel like? It feels like brokenness, doesn't it? It feels like that, that this life is just, a, it's just a, a series of days and sunsets and sunrises and it just seems monotonous year after year. But you see, God is still at work. God is still bringing about a history for the future. And, and when, even when they took possession of the land, you know what the people did? They disobeyed God. Did that fix anything when, they, when God gave them the promised land? No, they just continued to be unfaithful, but yet God continued to be faithful. 
That's the way he always is. And it says when they, when they were oppressed by their enemies, verse 20, he gave them judges. He gave them deliverers until Samuel the prophet. See, Samuel was the last, was the last judge, and he was also a prophet. He anointed the first king. The people didn't, weren't content with living different from the rest of the people around them, and so they asked for a king, it says in verse 21. But even though them asking for a king was a rejection of the Lord, it says there that God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And in verse 22, after God had removed Saul from the throne, he raised up David to be their king. Now, when you hear a word like that in the, in the Old Testament, it's significant. God raised up. It, it, it signifies a, a time, a point of change in history. God has been doing something. He's still working. But now we come to one of those points, one of those times in, in history where it, it becomes a point on the, on the map, and a recognized point. God raised up David. God's doing something. And David, he says, was a man after God's own heart. David was a, was a sinful man. I mean, he was guilty of, of cowardice, of murder, of adultery. But you know what happened when, when God confronted him and chastised him? And he, did, he repented. He changed his mind. He changed his heart. He turned back to God and sought to be obedient. That's the pattern for every person in this world. We're all sinful. When God calls us, then we turn our heart from our sin and we turn back to God and seek to be obedient by his grace. David becomes a pattern, a picture here for us. And see, Paul doesn't dwell on anything, really, any of this history until he gets to David because this is where he wants to play this, place the stress. He, he's placing the stress on the fact that God called, God elected Israel, and God has been working all this time through their history, bringing them out of bondage, bringing them into the promised land, and bringing them through a stage of, of judges and judges and kings and all these kind of things. And finally, God raises up this man, this picture of God's heart. And it's through this man that God is going to bring the deliverer. Now, can I say again to you how easy it is for us to lose sight of history? As we get up every day, go do the same thing over and over and over, go to work, uh, you know, do these things that seem sometimes so monotonous, so everyday. It doesn't seem like God is at work anywhere. It just looks like the sun's coming up and the sun's going down, just like it did the day before and the day after. We lose sight of the fact that God is really at work right now. And there is coming a culmination to all that God is doing. And that culmination is met in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope for the future. And though it doesn't look like it right now, we live by faith in the fact that God is at work. Don't lose sight that 
Jesus, we preach Jesus because he is the culmination of history. But not only that, he tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. That's in verses 22 through through 37. And the pace slows down here at David because this is what Paul wants to emphasize. Verse 23, look at this. From the descendants of this man, that's David, according to promise, that's a prophecy, God has brought to Israel a Savior. Who is he? It's Jesus. Not only does that Old Testament prophecy point to the Israel, to Israel's history, it points to Israel's Savior. It points to Jesus. Think about that. You know what this? I've got my hand right here. That's the Old Testament. That's the New Testament. You know what all that is? That's history. That's, his, that's Israel's history. But that's also God's history of bringing a Savior into the world. He's been at work, and he is still at work. And when Jesus came, he was a fulfillment of all the things that were written there. Revelation chapter 19 verse 10 says that uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, when you're talking about Jesus, man, you are talking about the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Where did it begin? It began because he is the seed of the woman who would bruise the, the head of the, who crushed the head of the serpent. It began back there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And it's been about him all the time. You see, he was the, the virgin-born son whose name was God with us, Isaiah 7, 14. He was the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, Isaiah 9, verse 6. Micah 5, 2, foretold that the, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's exactly where Jesus was born. The Messiah was to be a descendant of Abraham, but he was also to be a descendant of David. Look at the genealogies. That's exactly where Jesus came from. Uh, Psalm 110.4 predicted that the Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews plainly tells us he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Centuries before Jesus ever rode into Bethlehem on a donkey, it was foretold in the old, by the Old Testament prophets, Zechariah 9.9. 9. He did just that. Psalm 41.9 predicted that he would be betrayed. Uh, Zechariah 11.12 tells us that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, exactly as it happened. The fulfillment of those prophecies and dozens of others prove without a doubt that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Now the first prophecy that, that, that Paul mentions here is that of the forerunner that would come before the Messiah. And that, that was fulfilled, or it was predicted, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, where God said, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. In other words, he's going to announce the coming of the Messiah. And that prophecy was fulfilled in John the Baptist, verse 24, who proclaimed a baptism of repentance to the people of Israel. John's saying, listen, the Messiah is coming, and you need to prepare your hearts to receive him through repentance. Verse 25, and while John was 
completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not, un, uh, not worthy to untie. Do you see this? It's all happening in history, but it's all happening in history according to the exact plan that God has laid out in prophecy. It's happening perfectly in order, as God said it would. And here Paul reaches an important point in his sermon because he's going to pause and he's going to make application. He says in verse 26, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. You see, Paul wants to make sure that the Jews understand it and even the people who were God-fearers, the Gentiles understood that this message of salvation is for them. And God wants you to understand that this message of salvation is for you. It's, as Paul would later say, it's, it's, it's for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Then Paul employed a technique that he frequently used in his writing. He, um, he um, would um, kind of try to imagine the questions that might arise in the minds of his hearers and answer those questions before they were even asked. Now, the first question that he asked is, 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 is one that people have wrestled with, especially the Jewish people, from apostolic times. If Jesus was really the Messiah, why didn't they, the people of God recognize him as such? I mean, if he's really the Messiah, why wouldn't our leaders have told us that this is who he is? And Paul gave them, really, he gave them the same answer that Stephen gave them. He says, it's because of the hardness of your heart. You see, people don't really want a Savior. Sinners don't want a Savior. They want their sin. They love darkness rather than light. So people conveniently come up with ways of dismissing the answers that God would give to us as in a Savior. We don't want Jesus. We say it couldn't be him. This couldn't be the way of salvation. There must be something else because it's not what we want. But he explained in verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill these by condemning him. The so-called experts of the Old Testament in that day did not make the connection between what they were reading every day or every Sabbath in the Word of God and exactly and the prophecies that were made there and what Jesus was doing. If they had recognized that, it would have been obvious that Jesus was the Messiah. But they didn't. but But instead, what did they do? Ironically, they fulfilled the Scripture that they didn't understand by condemning him because the fact that he would be condemned was a part of the prophecy. And they fulfilled that very prophecy themselves. And, and then Paul answered a second question that would have risen in their minds. If Messiah was rejected, then does that nullify God's plan for Israel? Does that nullify God's plan in history? And the answer is absolutely not. See, the scripture foresaw this. Isaiah 53.3 says that Jesus would be despised 
and forsaken of men. They hated him without a cause, verse 28. Though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. They unwittingly fulfilled Psalm 69.4, which says, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. And so Paul says in verse 29, he says that when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross. Now that's talking about all the prophecies that the Messiah filled when he was hanging on the cross, when he came down from the cross. You say, what are some of those? Well, Psalm 109 verse 25 tells us the Messiah would be despised, that he would be a reproach, and that the people would wag their heads at him. You remember reading about that in the Gospels, how they wagged their heads at Jesus? Psalm twenty-two seventeen says that the crowds at the crucifixion would just stare at him. That's exactly what the Gospels say he did. they did. Psalm 22, 18 predicted that the executioners would divide his clothing among them by lot. We know that happened. Psalm 69, 21 predicted he would be given vinegar and gall for his thirst. We know that happened. Jesus' cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that was a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1. And his words, my father, into my hands I commit my spirit, were foretold by Psalm 31, 5. Uh, Psalm 34, 20 predicted that the executioners wouldn't break any of his bones. And they weren't. Zechariah twelve ten foretold the piercing of his side with a spear. We know that happened as well. See, and the very fact that the Old Testament predicted that Jesus would be crucified is amazing in itself because in that day, those people didn't even know about crucifixion. Yet it's described for us uh, very uh, particularly in the scriptures. And the prophecies were also fulfilled in Christ's burial. I mean, even the fact that he was buried. Because, you know, in crucifixion, people were commonly, they were just thrown into a mass grave because these were usually the, the criminals, the low, the, the, uh, the very poor, and they just throw them in a big mass hole and cover them up. But it says of Jesus that in, in Isaiah 53 and verse 9, his grave was assigned with the wicked man, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Amazing, isn't it? In verse 30, Paul kind of comes to the climax of his message. And he says there, but God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And of all the proofs that Jesus was the Messiah, this is without the doubt the, the greatest. As Paul later wrote in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Friend, you can't get any more powerful than the fact that you could raise yourself from the dead. And he's alive, and he's the, the proof that he is the Messiah. And, and there, then there's... But there, he doesn't stop there. That resurrection happened because there are an incredible number of witnesses. It says in verse 31, For many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, 
and, and, and the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Over 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, there is no other explanation for that first Easter morning than the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he is alive. And so Paul says in verse 32, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That promise has been fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Jesus died for our sins. He took upon himself all sin of the world. And he paid the penalty for that sin. He was buried. But then he rose from the dead and he is alive. And he not only is alive, but he gives to us life as well. Eternal life. And so, you see, what Paul does is he, he, he talks about the promises that... There's three of them in verses 33 through 37. The first promise was fulfilled when God raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. See, that's a fulfillment of prophecy. Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. There it is. That's not only Jesus' resurrection, but that is his, his incarnation. That is his deity. Paul quoted Psalm 2. They're from that place. A second promise, verse 34, comes from Isaiah 53.3. And he says, it came true when God raised Jesus up from the dead, no more to return to decay. And he spoke in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Friend, a dead Savior can't give you anything. But that living Savior can give you all the blessings, all the promises. He can fulfill all that God has promised to us because he is alive. And the greatest promise came from Psalm 1610 where David writes in verse 30, or David writes 35, verse 35, Thou will not allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Some people want to say, well, David was talking about himself. No. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Messiah. Because, you see, in verse 36, he says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, let's stop right there for a moment. David served the purpose of God in his own generation. His little history had a purpose. Your little history has a purpose. David served the purpose of God in his own generation. He fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. David's body still where it was buried originally. His bones are there. He, his, his body is there. But listen, the purpose is not fulfilled yet. That body He's going to be raised again. And he is going to live forever and ever and ever. And every person who believes in Jesus Christ will be raised from the dead and will live forever. See, there's a purpose. And God is at work. And and in sharp contrast to David, 
Verse 37, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Friend, you will never go undergo decay. Your spirit is alive and your body is going to be reunited with that body. And, th- and those, all those promises, those countless those require the resurrection of Jesus Christ for their fulfillment. And finally, Paul concludes by saying that Jesus is the hope for sinners. Well, he's the culmination of history. He is the fulfillment of prophecy, and man, he is the hope of sinners. You know, the critical issue for the Jewish people was, what do we do about sin? They were, they were aware, they were sensitive to the issue of sin. As the ancient uh, book of Job expressed, it says, how can a man be made right with God? How can a, can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? How can we who are sinful ever be right with God? That's the great question. The most common answer of that day, well, let's keep the law. There's only one problem with that. Our human inability to keep the law. None of us can keep the law. None of us can live a perfect life. If it's, if it's left to up, to up to us, we will be condemned. And, and the law imposes this crushing burden on us. It says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things, all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That means that if you break even one rule, you are punished. It's like saying, hey, I have kept all the laws of the land all my life. Except for one. That was when I killed someone. Do, am I going to be punished? I'm, all my good law keeping all my life doesn't keep me from being punished for that one law that I broke. Right? And friends, sin is breaking God's law. We have all already broken God's law. We are all already under the judgment of the law. That's why we need a Savior. Because without him, we are hopeless, hopelessly lost. And so we, we, we come to verse 38. And he says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Isn't that beautiful? And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Jesus is the one who God appointed in the very beginning, even before there was time, sent him into the world, became a man, lived a life of perfect righteousness. Then he went to the cross, took upon himself our sin, our judgment, paid our penalty, was buried, and then rose again. He is alive, and he offers to us now his righteousness in place of our sin, and he offers us his life in place of death. That's the beautiful forgiveness of sins, and it says for all things. He forgives us for all things. Everything. There's nothing that you have ever done in your life 
that God will not forgive you for when you believe in him. That's the good news. Isn't that wonderful good news? Amen. Now, how astonishing it is that the very sin of murdering the Messiah provided the very sacrifice that enabled us to be forgiven of our sin. It was a sin that enabled us to be forgiven of our sins. Incredible thing. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, he says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The only way we can receive this forgiveness is by faith. It's not what we do, but it is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Can I call your attention to something that Paul does here in in verse 40? He warns us against rejecting this offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Verse 40, he says, Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. You say, what's spoken of in the prophets? What is spoken of in the prophets that would come upon us? Judgment. What's the penalty for sin? Death. Eternal separation from God. Hell. Listen, don't let that come upon you. Verse 41, Paul quotes Habakkuk 1.5. He says, Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish. For I am accompanying a work in your days, or excuse me, accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Do you get the picture here? Do you understand what he is saying? He is saying, listen, I am preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. You are seeing it, you are hearing it, and yet you can walk out of here and perish. We can hear, the, we can hear that, that message of salvation clearly taught and proclaimed, and yet we can walk out and perish. We can allow that thing to come upon us. And he says, don't do that. Please don't do that. You see, this, this, is, this is Paul's invitation. Come to Jesus. Salvation is for you. Don't miss out on this wonderful gift. That's the, that's the choice that he left his hearers with. Let me ask you, where are you in history? Where are you? You know, you look at your life. From the time you were born, you can look at all the, the aspects of your life. Have you ever done a timeline of your own life? You don't put, you know, what I'm in first grade, 1965 or whatever it is, you know. I'm in sixth grade. I'm in high school. I graduate. I go to college or what, you know, I get married. My mom dies. My dad dies. You ever look at your history timeline? You know what's the most important part on that timeline? I hear the gospel. I trust Jesus. 
my timeline suddenly goes to eternity. That's the most important part. Have you come to a place in your life where you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord? Is your history connected with his history? Because do you understand what's going to happen? Do you understand what's going to happen? See, and people are asking me about this, a lot of questions after the second service, but I want to tell you what's going to happen. Jesus has gone, already gone to the cross, already paid for our sins. Jesus is already raised from the dead. Jesus already ascended to heaven. But you know what? Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, you know what he's going to do? He's going to set up his rule on the earth, and he's going to be the king over the earth for a thousand years. That's called the millennial reign. At the end of that reign, the devil is going to be released. Satan is going to be released for a while, and then he is going to be cast back into He's going to lead a rebellion against Christ. See, because even though Jesus is the Savior in this world right now, he's, and he's the king right now, there's still sin. And and Satan, when he's released, he is going to appeal to sinners just like he always has. And they're going to rebel against him. And there's going to be the putting down of Satan. And then Christ is going to put away this entire earth, the whole earth, and the whole heavens. And it's going to be destroyed with intense heat. And God's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. And he is going to rule and reign and, and the new Jerusalem is going to come down and we are going to live with him forever in a world that has been recovered, that has been restored from sin and brokenness. And those who believe in him will dwell with him. Now, when I describe that, that may just seem like science fiction to you. That means like see so far in the future... That seems like an impossible reality. But listen, look back. Look at all that has already happened. And it happened exactly like God said it would happen. And everything that he says will happen in the future will happen. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus is the hope of sinners. He's your hope. Without him... There is no meaning, there is no purpose, and there is no hope. So where are you? Where are you? Is your, is your history aligned with Jesus' history? You know how you do that? You simply say to him, God, I know that I have been living a self-determined life going the way I want to go, living the way I want to live, and I know that's wrong, that's sin. And I want to turn from that, and I want to trust in you, what you've done for me on the cross, and I want to have eternal life. I want you to live and dwell in me through your spirit, and I want to have eternal life with you. That's the simple heart that you have to say to Jesus. And if you say that to him, he is always faithful. And then immediately, he will give you his Holy Spirit, just like we've read about these people in the book of Acts, and he will give you eternal life and give you a new power and a new desire to live for him. Would you like to trust him? Have you trusted him? If not, you can do that today. 
I want to ask you just to close your eyes. And put your focus on Jesus this moment. The Jesus who came into the world for you and died for you. The Jesus who rose from the dead. The Jesus who has ascended to heaven and is exalted as Lord. And you can talk to him. In your own heart right now, you can talk to him. And you can just tell him what we just talked about. Jesus, I know I've sinned. And I ask you to forgive me. I believe you died for me. And I believe you're alive. And I want to have I want my history to be with you. I want my future to be with you. Forgive me of that sin as you promised you would today. All my sin. Forgive me. And save me. Now, all eyes are closed and heads are bowed. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You prayed that prayer with me today. I want to ask you just to stand. Pray that prayer with me today. Just stand wherever you are. Okay. Thank you, Father, for the this incredible gospel that we have to proclaim. And I pray for those today who are struggling, who are battling with you spiritually inside. I pray that you would uh, continue to help them know that you are, you're there, that you are working in their lives, that you're real. Lord, maybe there's people not making the connection today, but God, I pray you continue to work in their history bring them to that place where they put their trust in you. Lord, I pray you'd not allow the things that were spoken of in the prophets, the, the judgments, the difficulties, the hardships to come upon them. But Lord, you grant to them repentance before the time is too late. I pray for your people today that you would enable us, Lord, to, to declare Jesus and the incredible greatness of salvation through him. And Father, we ask these things today in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.